0: Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a better understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, uh, author, um, editor, lecturer, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for those of you who don't actually traffic in rare books, uh, you might be a little confused about Foxed Page. Foxing is simply those little brownish spots, discoloration that you see on the pages of very old, beloved books. Today, we are diving in to Cormac McCarthy. So I have been wanting to record something about McCarthy since he died. I think it was in June of this year, maybe July, I think June. And um, I uh, was waiting until I kind of had it in me to Tackle the passenger and Stella Maris. I did that this week. Um, I, I tackled both of them. In fact, I listened to Stella Maris, which was really interesting. I have to say that there, you know, these books they came out last year, uh, I think in October and November, um, there was a little bit of controversy. Mostly people thought they were amazing, um, but there was, you know, the occasional detractor. And I have to say that I found them so incredibly engaging. I just found myself absolutely like subsumed into this literature. I did find myself reading a little bit quickly, kind of like I did with Anna Burns with Milkman, because it's pretty intense. And so I found myself uh, kind of like reading a little breathlessly and wanting to kind of move through uh, in part because what I was reading was difficult, also because it was just so incredibly beautiful. This doesn't happen to me very often, but I would find myself saying things like, okay, at the end of this chapter, I'm gonna get up and like feed the dogs or whatever the thing was that I needed to do. And I just kept reading and reading and reading and 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 frankly, really impressed and really heartened in a weird way. I mean, they're very dark works uh, and yet, It just really spoke to something inside of me. So what I'm hoping to do today uh, is the following. We are going to do a, a little conversation about why I think you should read this book and why I am talking about Cormac McCarthy's work in general, we'll do a quick biography Then we're gonna talk a little more broadly uh, about the book itself. We're gonna talk about the structure of both The Passenger and Stella Maris. Then we're going to talk about the absolute gorgeous beauty of the prose. And I'm gonna sort of break down the reasons why I think the prose is so incredibly great. We're gonna talk about his influences, which are many and well-documented. And we're gonna talk about um, some certain aspects of this work in particular that I think make it particularly engaging. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about misogyny in the work of Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy, not not too broadly because I just don't feel prepared to like really dive into the whole oeuvre. But we are going to talk about um, about a little shift, a little shift that I'm sensing here in *The Passenger* and *Stella Maris*, where finally we have a female character who is really front and center and and really very much uh, you know the heart of the book in some ways. And then finally, we're going to do a little bit of a a parlor trick, where um, one of the things that has been critiqued about these novels is the digressive nature of the passenger. And we'll get to what I mean by that. But I would argue that literally every sentence, every paragraph, every scene that feels like a digression from the, um, you know, sort of main thrust of the book uh, is in fact reinforcing that main thrust. So I think people who are um, just like, wait, what's up with all these digressions are just not, they're just not focused enough. And allow me to uh, explain exactly what I mean by that. And also maybe to hone your focus um, before you are um, diving into the book. So why? Why do I think you should read Cormac McCarthy? Why was I looking forward to it so much? Partially, again, because he died. He's largely recognized as sort of like one of the greatest American novelists. There's also talk about him potentially receiving the Nobel Prize for literature. He's just one of these like enormous figures in American letters and and really um, has a lot to say about what it is not only to be American, but what it is to be human. So I I would suggest that you read it for that alone. I mean, the themes he tackles are enormous and he does it with such skill and with such originality that it's just astonishing. And and given the reception of this last work and, and the way that it has Sort of um you know garnered a lot of interest in early mccarthy so there's early mccarthy and then there's later mccarthy and uh the sort of bridged by all the pretty horses the crossing and cities of the plain which is the trilogy uh that, that really sort of earned him uh, a spotlight so in fact i'll just run through this right now but we have um in the very beginning he wrote a book called uh or the Orchard Keeper and a book early on, there was The Orchard Keeper. Um, Child of God, Sutri, those were all these really ornate, sort of Baroque, fanciful books. I actually have not read any of them, which I'm really excited to go back and look at the early Cormac McCarthy. Um, Then he wrote Blood Meridian, which is known as sort of his magnum opus. And that is a book that I read and that I loved. It's known for being very challenging and difficult, and it is certainly, but it's really, really worth, you know, the investment of time and energy. After Blood Meridian, and and all of his early work was uh, really received well by the critics, and he had sort of this cult following, but never really a big you know commercial following. He came out with uh, the Border Trilogy, which is all the pretty horses. The Crossing and Cities of the Plain. One of the critics I I was reading about recently said that Cormac McCarthy has finally written a book that will offend no one, which is not true because I think a lot of women were offended. Um, There's been sort of a simmering of misogyny throughout uh, all of his career, largely because of the absence of women in his work, which I just don't know that that's fair. I mean, if, if there aren't women in the book, that's just a fact. I mean, we're going to get to this. We'll, we'll get to the misogyny later. But city, the, the, the border trilogy, beginning with All the Pretty Horses, had huge um, commercial success and sort of put him on the map with a much wider readership. And then he went on to write No Country for Old Men and The Road at the beginning of the 21st century. I think they come out in 2005 and 2006. And um, for one of for The Road, he wins the Pulitzer Prize and the James Tate Memorial Prize. And Old Country for Old Men. I mean, No Country for Old Men uh, was very successful, largely because the film was so good, and because it was, um, you know, it had lots and lots of Academy Award, uh, you know, winnings. What do you call that? It won Academy Awards. One of them including um, Best Picture, and it's a it's a movie that's incredible. But it also really brought the book to the fore, and a lot of people read those two books, which is so interesting to me because. Um, you know, the Border Trilogy with John Grady Cole, and it's kind of a Western novel, and it's there's a romance in it, and it had very broad appeal. The Road is a post-apocalyptic story about a father and a son. It's very brief. It's very intense. Um, it is a book that I read once and was so incredibly moved and really wanted to read it again, and I've honestly just, like, not been able to do it. I mean, it's just—it just was so, so— uh moving and so well done and so dense and so beautiful. And I recommended it to a million people. And then I just couldn't ever quite get myself back to a place where I was ready to to dig in again. Um, Then he wrote, no Country for Old Men, which is um, just incredibly violent and really explores the idea of evil. And that was also very successful. So those were two very dark books uh, that really he did very well with. Then we wait 16 years and finally we have in 2022, the arrival of the passenger that's followed one month later by uh, by Stella Maris. So. Um, we're going to get to the, the sort of the context of those, but I've, I've just laid out all of the work, and here's why I think you should be reading uh, Cormac McCarthy. One is that there's this incredible literary prowess. So this is a man who um, he, he didn't study a ton of literature. He for a while was I think at the University of Tennessee. Uh, he was born in Rhode Island and then went to was, was raised and grew up for the most part in Knoxville, Tennessee. Went to the University of Tennessee for a little while, dropped out of college to go to the Air Force. Um, But in college had been um, encouraged to start writing, which he started to do. And then I think, I don't know that he ever graduated from college. It doesn't really matter. So that's a good segue into the fact that yes, the the work is very original in lots of ways, um, but it also has these enormous debts to huge writers, to uh, Shakespeare, to Melville, to Conrad, uh, to Faulkner in a huge, huge way so this is somebody who is writing it's it's almost um it's almost well, James Wood called him a, 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 a ventriloquist, essentially that he is able to bring all of these voices to bear when he is writing his own fiction. In fact, he was criticized early on because his writing was so Faulknerian that one critic said that his own considerable genius was not shining all the way through. But I personally love it because you have this amalgam of these voices—Faulkner and also Hemingway, all these different, all these different important thinkers. He was we went to. Catholic school is Irish Catholic and was really affected by the King's King James Bible so you have all of these different literary uh, it's like a literary smoothie is really maybe one way to think about it but it's so incredible because it is all of these voices sort of synthesized all of the kind of best of those incredible writers synthesized into this unique voice that that is unmistakable and and really just it's just absolutely beautiful prose. Um, he also, it, there is an importance of the themes. He said himself that he uh, really only likes the work of people who are really thinking about the very, very big questions, literally questions of life and death. So. He's tackling these enormous uh, themes, these enormous questions about good and evil, about what it means to be human, about what consciousness is. I mean, these huge, huge, big uh, questions, but what's very important is he's doing it all in a, um, in a, a milieu and kind of like, a, like an everyman situation where you are really, it's, it's very approachable in terms of story. So this is a um, you know, John Grady Cole in All the Pretty Horses or the father figure in The Road. These are people who are very approachable. They're, um, they're, he has these protagonists who just have this incredible warmth to them and, and they tend to be uh, quiet. Which is interesting because you feel like you know them so so well, and yet they are, generally speaking, men of very few words. But their actions speak volumes, and also you, uh, the details are so well done, and the scenes are so well constructed, and the dialogue is so incredibly hardworking that you have this sense of you love these people, you love these characters who um, who populate the fiction who are vulnerable and who are approachable, and you know, in No Country for Old Men and actually in the passenger these are men who are kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time in some ways the passenger is more complicated than that but we're going to get to it uh, but, but you know these these people these humans who get sort of caught up in these schemes government and mob and otherwise and and you really really have enormous sympathy for them and you really love these characters not just the main ones but like lots of them then you also abhor some of these characters because they're so truly awful uh, but but so you have this incredible balance of of real sympathy which i think leads to incredible engagement with the work so that is why i think that you should read this book um, we're going to move on to the biography i've given you snippets here and there but we're just going to lay it out here. Cormac McCarthy was born in 1933 in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, he was third of six children in an Irish Catholic family, and the, the Irish Catholicism is really important and really interesting to me. So the family then moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. His father was a lawyer in the Tennessee Valley Administration during, um, you know, the 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 uh, FDR years. All those, you know, work. Grant kind of years of, of, of good democracy. Um, and so, and, and they, you know, they were relatively comfortable. He says that they were known as being rich just because everyone else was living in like a one room shack. This is during, um you know, during the thirties, during the depression. He had three wives and he has two boys. And uh, one from a, they're, they're very par- far apart in age, one from, I believe his second marriage, his first marriage only lasted for a year. He, um, I read this stuff about his life with his wives. So he, he's incredibly intense and incredibly serious about his writing. So there was lots of like sacrificing everything and living in these really almost squalid uh, conditions in order to not have to work and in order to devote himself entirely to his job. One of the things in the passenger um, is that, as Bobby Western is getting sort of further and further um, away from society, as he is trying to sort of um you know take himself out of danger because he needs to be inconspicuous. He ends up living in a shack on a beach and then he ends up living in a windmill. And I kept thinking like Cormac McCarthy has a lot of experience with this kind of like living in these shitty places. I mean, maybe he doesn't think they're shitty, he probably thinks they're great, but like no plumbing and no bathroom and no heat and all of that kind of stuff. I think it would be rough if you were someone who was not fully on board with that to then have to sort of subject yourself to it. So my sense is that he probably was a really hard dude to be married to. Um, I don't know though, but I mean, three divorces, that tells us, that tells us something. He wrote 12 novels, three plays, sorry, 12 novels, two plays, five screen plays, and three short stories. And um, he has, he has, uh, there's quite a bit of papers that I think are at UT Austin. Mm, I think I'm wrong about that. Might be Yale. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, but there's a lot of work. There is talk that a, um, a movie version of Blood Meridian is maybe in production by the same people who did No Country for Old Men. So there's a lot of sort of excitement about what that might look like. In Wikipedia, it says he is known for his graphic depiction of violence and his sparse use of punctuation and attribution. So a lot is made of his punctuation and attribution is simply like when you say he said and the sort of glosses that we have talked about in the Fox page in the past. So he doesn't use quotation marks and he doesn't use uh, attribution, which is their glosses that'll tell you like he said as he was walking out the door, you know, that sort of thing. But there's much more to his prose. I mean, if it were just punctuation and a lack of attribution, there are, you know, a handful of very well-known other authors who do that same thing. Um, He, it also says in Wikipedia though that he is widely regarded as one of the great American novelists, which is, I think, undisputable. I mean, it's just he's just really uh, just extraordinary, frankly, in terms of prose styling, in terms of theme, in terms of the scope of his novel, the breadth of his. It's he's it's just it's incredible. In 1985, uh, Blood Meridian was published, and that is known as his sort of magnum opus, and some people consider it the great American novel, which that's a little dubious. I think there are a lot of great American novels. It's hard not to look at Gatsby as one, for example, or, um, you know, this. well, The Sound and the Fury is very sort of regionalist, but there's a lot of, um, you know, there are a bunch of novels that we could could point to, um, and certainly Blood Meridian is also somewhat regionalist. Uh, All the Pretty Horses in 1992 won the National Book Award, also the National Book Critics Circle Award, and No Country for Old Men in uh, 2005 was made into the movie and won an Academy Award. So, you know, that's kind of a nice accolade for McCarthy. Um, And then 2006 uh, saw the publication of The Road and it was named the Pulitzer Prize winner and the James Tate Memorial uh, prize winner in 2007, and then again we had 16 years to wait uh, before we saw *The Passenger* and uh, *Stella Maris*. Those books were rumored, though, to have been started as early as you know 1980. There's a lot of kind of rumor about the origins of *The Passenger* and, uh, and *Stella Maris* both. And when we talk about structure, we can talk about some of the theories about how the two um, relate to one another. So brief bio, um, you know, digression about this Irishness of McCarthy. So, you know, he comes from an Irish Catholic family, went to Irish Catholic schools, was one of six children, I'm not Irish Catholic schools, went to like American Catholic schools, Um, but but was really sort of, I think, um, steeped in some of this kind of um, what I like to think of as some of the angst and some of the foreboding and some of the darkness that I am frankly really drawn to in Irish literature. What is interesting to me, and um, stay tuned for an entire lecture about this on the Fox page at some point soon, is the, the, the sort of the Venn diagram of the South and of Ireland in terms of literature, there is a lot of area, a lot of surface area, surface area, a lot of area um, that is sort of the intersection of the those two Venn diagram circles. So. Both of them, I'm not going to go into too much detail about this, but if you think about Ireland and you think about the South, there is quite a bit, you know, we have religious places in both situations. We have places that have sort of either been colonized in the case of Ireland or have tried to sort of secede. They're places that feel very, very different from, like they themselves feel very different from the country in which they are kind of, you know, Involved, or, or in the case of the South, the country in which they are very firmly, you know, situated. Um, in both of them, you have a legacy of a lot of violence. So, in the with Ireland, with the sectarian wars between the Catholics and the Protestants, it's a very real and very recent sort of violence. And in the South, you have the violence of the Civil War, and in the South, you have this incredible, the incredible weight of slavery and and the complicated. Um, I mean, complicated is like, like maybe not the right word, but like you have this very, like, huge legacy that really, you know, is, 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 uh, should, burden the South in lots of ways. So I don't have a perfect analogy there for Irish, but these are places also um, uh, bodies of literature where a sense of place is incredibly important. So, you know, you think of Faulkner, you think of James Joyce, and both of those are modernist writers. They're people who were formally inventive. There's just, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of um, overlap between what's happening in Ireland in terms of literature and what's happening in the American South. So if you have someone like McCarthy, who is Irish, uh, you know, uh, by, by sort of, you know, culture and by extraction and by religion, and you have him in the south. You've got like kind of a double whammy here. You've got a lot of Catholic guilt, I would imagine. You've got a lot of Catholic teachings. You've got a lot of um, you know sort of the, the 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 sort of framework of Catholicism. And you then also have uh, and and Ireland. You know these are immigrants, presumably sometime in the not too distant past from Ireland. So you have this idea of of then being in the south, where you know you have a whole other host of of uh, you know sort of reasons to be angstful. So I'm very interested in this mashup between Ireland and the South. Stay tuned because the Fox page will be diving a bit deeper. Um I want to stop uh there after the biography and talk a little bit about his influences. So James Wood, who is a British critic who is just like so smart and I really, really love his work, he calls uh Cormac McCarthy colossally gifted. And again, this is someone who's um who's literary tastes i really admire. He goes on to say that he uh he writes with a histrionic rhetoric that brilliantly ventriloquizes the King James Bible, Shakespearean and Jacobean tragedy, Melville, Conrad and Faulkner. Um i have to say i didn't really know what Jacobean uh tragedy is. I mean i guess that's the the King James, you know, era. I can't even remember. I think maybe King James came right after the Elizabethan era. So um, I just was like, okay, British critic. He's just like a little flex for all of the Americans who are like, wait, what? We all got the Shakespearean thing. That was you know, Elizabethan. We're talking latter half of the 16th century. So 1550 to like, I don't know, 1610, 1620 is kind of Shakespeare's moment. It's Elizabethan England. Then we have Jacobian. Maybe, maybe I think maybe Shakespearean and Jacobian simply mostly just means Shakespearean. Um, I think it's funny because I was like, I got the rest of the references. The King James Bible, Shakespeare, Melville, Conrad and uh, Faulkner. I'm not a huge Melville fan. And I know a lot of people, um, you know, really, really see a lot of Melville in Uh, Cormac McCarthy, but I'm still not gonna go back and read a lot of Melville. I just was like, all that blubber, you know? Moby Dick, just like a lot about knots and a lot about blubber. And I was just like, no, thank you. Conrad I loved, but I haven't read for a long time. I mean, both of those in Melville and Conrad, you have that kind of maniacal focus and this kind of idea of like degeneration and the idea of obsession uh, as sort of taking over, which are very uh, McCarthy-esque kind of uh, concepts. Faulkner, I know and love. I also see a lot of James Joyce in McCarthy, which I think is a very fair thing. There's a lot of um, wordplay, a lot of very sort of clever stuff, a lot of humor. Also, um, very importantly, James Joyce did not ever use what he called scare quotes. I think that's actually falsely attributed to him. I don't think that James Joyce actually called them scare quotes, but everybody says that he did. Um, He felt, James Joyce felt like having the quotation marks and then these glosses that were these attributions of who was speaking, he felt like it took the reader too far out of the work. Um, So I, I think you have to be a very, very skilled writer in order to be able to write without quotation marks and to make sure that your reader is feeling, you know, well enough kind of tethered to what is going on and who is talking. In the, in the, um, in the case of James, he does what they do in Spain, which he uses an m dash at the beginning of a line that is spoken by someone. So you have an m dash, and then you have a line of dialogue in James. In the case of Carthy, he gets rid of the m dash and he just goes ahead and writes the dialogue. And I find it very, very effective. When the reader is confused, you can keep this in mind when you're reading, um, McCarthy as the reader. I mean, sometimes I would have to make like a little B for like, okay, this is Bobby talking. And then I have to be like B skip B skip B, because I was getting a little confused, but most of the time when I was getting confused, it is because Faulkner. Oh oh my gosh. I'm probably going to do that a lot. It's because McCarthy wants you on some level. Like he doesn't really care if you're kind of melding these two voices together because it's either, you know, Bobby Western and his sister Alicia, or it's Bobby and his best friend Shadan. It's It could be these different people, or it, again, toward the end, uh, he's having this very important sort of hallucinatory conversation with his best friend who actually is dead. And when the voices kind of start melding together, you really have to ask yourself, meaning he has them set up as dialogue, but they start to kind of meld together. And, and you're reminded of the fact that, that this is something that our uh, protagonist is imagining. So he uses this this unusual dialogue uh, sort of punctuation in very effective ways. And for me, that really has everything to do with James Joyce. It's important to note too that Faulkner's last editor was a guy named Albert Erskine and Albert Erskine was at some point uh, McCarthy's editor. Another note in terms of influences. so. McCarthy himself has said that the good writers are Melville, Faulkner, Dostoevsky, and they are the the good writers because they deal with issues of life and death. So, you know, you, you have a sense those are people who, you know, Dostoevsky Again, I mean, you know, you think of Crime and Punishment, you think of the Brothers Karamazov. Like this is all about loyalty. They're very male worlds. It's about violence. It's about you know the nature of of you know human beings and sort of the, the the human condition. All of these very very large questions. Obviously, Faulkner does a lot with that, and Melville too. Melville a lot of big questions plus a lot of blubber and a lot of knots. He famously is is just like this incredible, uh, I want to say polymath, which now I don't even know if that's the right word. I think that means somebody who's like interested in a lot of different things. Apparently in high school, a teacher asked, um, you know, what people's hobbies were. And he literally like, like had so, so, so many hobbies that people were like, whoa, what dude, you know, like. Chill. But he because he's so so interested in so many different things. And you do get a sense in his work, like if you look at, you know, John Grady Cole as a Western guy, or you look at um, I mean, even like the crazy psychopath in No Country for Old Men, or you look at all the skills of the father in the post-apocalyptic terrain of the road, or you look at all the physics and all of the math and all of the specialized information about race car driving and about deep sea salvage, like this is a man who knows so, so much. So he's someone who's really, really um, like v- very right as far as, you know, as far as his work shows, but also someone who has huge, a huge breadth of interest and really seems to know a lot. Um, Dwight Garner, who is um I feel like he's like a food critic for the New York Times but he was the one who wrote um McCarthy's uh obituary and he talks about how he he has he had written a number of different times uh as a critic maybe he's also a book critic he must be um he had written different articles about McCarthy's work and in um I believe it maybe even was the passenger he had um I think there's some you know, criticism about uh, how well and how accurately Cormac McCarthy is portraying like literally the restaurant scene in New Orleans. So um, he spent, McCarthy spent a lot of time in New Orleans and um, literally Dwight Garner, who also has a lot of interest in food, realized that when, when he, Cormac McCarthy has two characters come in and order pasta, Dwight Garner's like, they would definitely not have clam pasta at that restaurant like that's just not it's never been on their menu it never would be on their menu they don't really do clams in new orleans so he i think did write to mccarthy and mccarthy for all his intensity and for all of his like what seems to me as like being kind of a weird dude um i guess he also does have a sense of humor and like wrote something about how he really needed to like put in a footnote or make a correction or whatever um but dwight garner says that in fact uh, McCarthy, because he is so knowledgeable and so authoritative on so many subjects, that he's also very sensitive to getting things right. So you do have a sense of, of him as being like, like, a, like a magnet and like a ventriloquist for all of these, not only the literary influences, but all of these different areas of specialty. I mean, the way he talks about deep sea salvaging, you're like, obviously he's done a lot of deep sea salvaging which I do not think he has done. He also, you would think he's like an incredible race car driver. I mean, all of these different things. Um, He's really, really very good, very chameleon-like and has a lot of authority. And as a reader, you end up really trusting that authority, which is no mean feat. Before I go on to talk about the structure, um, I want to just briefly um explain why i have this incredible painting sitting next to me here so this was actually done by one of my cousins i have two cousins who are incredible artists who support themselves by their you know by their visual art which is just it's so incredible to me Uh, and and they're very very skilled this, um, to me, always feels like Alice in Wonderland. this I have this sense, I mean, the red shoes are maybe like a little bit more uh you know Wizard of Oz, but this idea of of Alice, the blonde, the blue dress, this idea of Alice falling into the rabbit hole um is, is really it's it's every time I see this in my house, I just I have this very sort of Alice feeling, and in the passenger and Stella Maris, uh, the the main protagonist, the female, uh, who's the protagonist in Stella Maris is a woman whose name is Alice to begin with. And then she changes it to Alicia, I think when she's 16. And and that name is important. In my mind, it had a lot to do with uh, Alice in Wonderland. And I, I think that th- it has to be, that has to be the case. Um, Alicia in the book, I'm gonna go by her, uh, her chosen name, not the name that her father gave her. She is like such an Alice in Wonderland in the sense that she is, um, really down a lot of rabbit holes. I mean, her whole entire life is like a physics and a math rabbit hole. So she gets obsessed with, I mean, she talks at one point about reading, you know, 18 hours a day and she's reading like philosophy and, you know, mathematical theory and whatnot. And then also this idea of like, she's read two books a day for the past 15 years. So she's someone who, who's really down the rabbit hole. She's also someone who is seeing auditory and visual hallucinations. So you have this sense of kind of that, that um, other world nature behind the looking glass uh, that she's very much inhabiting that so in my mind it was definitely a nod to Alice in Wonderland and you mostly think her name is Alicia and then once or twice her uncle and her grandmother referred to her as Alice and so you have this sense of of Alice as as, you know both being um, well In my mind, it had everything to do with this idea of uh, Alice in Wonderland. But then she says at one point in Stella Maris that her father named her Alice uh, and named Bobby Robert because Bob and Alice are typical names that are in uh, like math problems. I have actually a different theory about Robert, which is this is so interesting to me. In The Passenger and in Stella Maris, the father figure, we know his last name is Western, although he's also known to have been from Jewish descent. His parents are Jewish, and we know that, and he is Jewish, and their mother is also Jewish. So, and which is important because we're talking about work that they're doing on the atomic bomb. So, this would have been during a time of real persecution and real trouble um, for Jewish people. So, we have this idea um, of, of him as this this last name western um you know you have this idea that he's sort of hiding behind this idea of of this last name western and he does not have a first name so the father in the book never is named which is so significant because he's also very absent from the book he um he's he had died of cancer when they were young ish and um he's just he's sort of ever present in the book and also not present at all and what that should make you think of a little bit here is the idea of God. You should be thinking of him as like our father, meaning like some sort of God, like, you know, force. And, you know, he gave both of them light and he brought the atomic light to the world. He was um, a physicist who was working with Oppenheimer and all of the people at the Manhattan project. So he's, um, really like this idea of him as having the last name Western, which to me seems like a made up kind of a thing or an adopted kind of thing, but the fact that he's nameless is very, very important and that he names his daughter uh, Alice and that he names his son Robert. Also Robert to me speaks of Oppenheimer and he would have named his son before he had met Oppenheimer, but I think there is meant to be some sort of resonance uh, with Oppenheimer and his son Robert. Also, Alicia decides that she wants to change her name. And at this point, her father has died in Mexico seeking a cancer cure. He died, you know, when she was younger, but it is Alicia is a Alicia is like a, a you know, a, a Spanish version of it it's Mexican in derivation. It's a Spanish version of, uh, you know, of Alice. So you do have this idea, too, of of Mexico as really a sort of, um, you know, this land that would have potentially cured their father, even though nobody was actually very hopeful about that. So in terms of structure, the passenger structure is so interesting. We have italicized uh, chapters that, that alternate with ones in Roman type, and the italicized chapters are Alicia, um, Alicia, whoops, they're Alicia, um, and, and she's, most of the time, she's visiting with her, she calls them her horts, as in cohorts, and these are her auditory and visual um, hallucinations. So she was diagnosed as schizophrenic, although in Stella Maris, you realize that that, that diagnosis is, is a little, it's a, she seems very, very sane in Stella Maris, and she actually seems pretty darn sane in uh, in The Passenger. Like you just you get the sense that she has you know these visions, she calls them chimeras, she calls them um, the entertainers, but but you get this sense of her as actually being very rational and 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 really um very sort of coherent. She's also someone who is deeply uh you know um frustrated in her love. okay, I'm gonna just spoil it right now. No, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not, she's frustrated in love. Her love is unrequited and um, is, is impossible. And so that is very, very difficult for her. And she is sort of possessed by that. And she also, um, again, is like this incredibly, incredibly smart young woman, graduated from the University of Chicago by the time she was like 14 or something and then was in their doctoral program. Um, she graduated from high school, I think when she was 12, went to college then. Like, it's just like a, an incredible uh, prodigy who makes the point actually that prodigy the Latin comes. It's the same word as monster. It's the same root as monster. So she's someone who is a very troubled person. Whether or not she's actually schizophrenic is is for the reader, I think, to determine. So we have these uh, italicized chapters that uh, that tell us about her experience. The book actually opens with her suicide. So we know that she's going to kill herself, which is such an interesting way to open the book because you know where she's headed. And I I think some people might have liked the idea of being able to sort of wonder what was going to happen to her. I, I think it's much smarter the way that he has done it because it adds this tension, uh, just in terms of of what her brother is going to do with this. So at the beginning of the book, we have her death, and then we also right away uh, have her brother looking in this salvage, he's doing this deep sea salvage of a private jet that has gone down and one of the passengers is missing. So the thing, you know, the title of the book obviously is The Passenger, and a lot of the tension in the book, um, at least in sort of the first half of The Passenger, is the idea of who this passenger might be. Um, But for anyone who is reading this uh, as sort of like a thriller or a mystery, I think you will be frustrated and a little confused. I had a very good friend who um, read the book and I asked if she liked it. And she's like, yeah, I really liked it, but I don't know that I got it because I don't know what happened to the passenger. So she's like, could you please read it and get back to me? And I will get back to you. Um, I'm getting back to you right now. And what I'm telling you is that the passenger is like the least important thing. I mean, essentially what we have here is another case Uh, very much like No Country for Old Men, where Bobby Western has sort of seen too much. And very quickly, we have some people who are after him. They may be government agents. Uh, It's it's unclear why they are after him. It's also unclear um, who is after him. And you do get the sense that he has sort of seen something he shouldn't have seen, that he may they think he knows something that he shouldn't know. But you have this much larger question of, and and this is really the theme that runs through both of the books, really this idea that their father, who was one of the creators of the atomic bomb, sort of unleashed this horror on the world and um, that the sort of sins of the father are being visited on the children. So that with the unleashing and with all of the evil and with all of the death that came with the atomic bomb, that subsequent generations are, are sort of damned and doomed and cursed Because, uh, you know, it was sort of like some sort of karmic retribution for the generation uh, that had gone before Bobby and Alicia. So the other uh, thing that structures The Passenger is that we have a lot of digressions. And later um, I am going to do like a little party trick where I'm gonna just open up to a random part of any one of these digressions. And I will argue in fact that these digressions are very enriching to the whole novel. But you definitely have um, you have this, this structure that, that some people I think found a little tedious. I think some people just kind of didn't get it. Um, this idea that you have Um, You know, some of the chapters are about Alicia. Some of the chapters are are Bobby Western evading the people who are after him. And then we have some flashbacks, but we have a lot of digressive conversations where he will sit down with his old friend or a very close friend of his who is a transgender woman in uh, New Orleans or uh, with this private investigator who he is somewhat working with. So we have kind of a bookend with his best friend, John Shadan, I think is how they say it in the audio book. So we have him early on and then we have him much, much later. And um, W.C. Fields is so funny. W.C., like the composer, the the, um, transgender woman's name is W.C. Fields. And um, she also is a, I think a a friend from a long, long time ago with Bobby. So Bobby has these very old friends who he trusts. And W.C. Fields has a very important role at the very end of the novel. So you have these scenes and they are certainly digressive and yet they're incredibly illustrative of the really important themes. It's almost like we have a reiteration of, of these really important questions Um, you know, that Bobby is trying to figure out and he's using all of these different people and their areas of expertise in order to sort of figure out what is what is happening in his life and what he ought to be doing and and what he is being surveilled for and how to feel about his family and all of these large, large issues. So with the structure of The Passenger is this sort of alternating views of Alicia and her brother. Stella Maris is, is shorter and on some level it's much kind of It's easier to read. I think you could read, um, you could certainly read The Passenger and I think you could probably read either and not really miss the other, but I think that reading them together is so cool because Stella Maris really fills in actually a lot of the, um, sort of a lot of information that you don't have in The Passenger. I definitely think you should read The Passenger first and then Stella Maris. Because I think there's some kind of spoilers in Stella Maris. Stella Maris is, the way that that is structured is also unique. It is Alicia talking to her therapist right toward the end of her life. Um, We have the alternating points of view in the passenger, and then we have just dialogue of the two of them in the office, and the therapist is sort of trying to understand um, how he might be able to help Alicia. I think it's unlike McCarthy to have these, like, these, like, kind of structures that are so conspicuous, but it's really, really effective, especially the Stella Maris part. I really loved it. Importantly, Stella Maris really puts Alicia really at front and center, and she is also very, very central in, uh, the passenger but Stella Maris you know we have a lot of her voice and we have um, a, a lot of her voice not just you know um hallucinating we have her voice talking very lucidly with her with her doctor and also we have a lot of digression in Stella Maris because it's a lot of conversation about Mathematics and a lot of conversation about physics and about the nature of reality and religion and afterlife and these ginormous questions, but it's um, it feels you feel very tethered as the as the reader. You have a good sense of sort of like what is going on, and it really helps uh, fill in some of the gaps that you have after the passenger gaps you didn't even really know you had. I mean, you kind of did, but then you're like, oh, that's what was going on in the passenger. It's really very satisfying. My sense is that. Probably McCarthy, I mean, he's been working on these you know, purportedly for decades and decades. My sense is that probably they were meant to be all in one book, but I find this incredibly effective. I love them being separate volumes. I love that they each have a very distinct structure. And I love that the structures kind of, um, you know, they have some similarities in terms of a male voice and a female voice. I I just really think um, it's, it's very well done and it's very satisfying. Again, I listened to Stella Maris and I really liked that. Oh, this is like a little, I have a little um, digression here myself. Another reason I wanted to do a Fox Page lecture about McCarthy is that he is known as being like, I mean, talk about a dude novel. Like, this is just like about as dude novel as you can get. And I was very frustrated because, you know, there's some critics, uh, female critics who write about his work, um, you know, through sort of a feminist lens. They're mostly very critical of him. But uh, the, when I was listening to different podcasts and, and and doing my research on The Passenger, there were so many, frankly, like not great uh, podcasts. By all these men, and it was a lot of pontificating and a lot of men like making conjecture about things. And frankly, there was a lot of misinformation. Um, you know, not like, well, actually, yeah, there was some. There was some really lame interpretation. I'm, and everyone is entitled to his opinion. I say his there on purpose because literally it was all men. This sounds weird that I'm putting so much kind of um, emphasis on like males and females and male critics and what, you know, female critics. But I think I I was very interested to know um, why it was just all these men. I finally found an interview by a woman and it was a review of the audio version of the book and the woman in it didn't even really say much, it was so disappointing. So I wanted to add my voice as as a woman and as a woman who is really deeply invested in the work of, of McCarthy and is really interested in reading it as a woman and as a feminist. I mean, it is a world that is definitively male, like, and we're gonna get into why I think that is the case. But I mean, first and foremost, there are not that many women in this world. And these are worlds that are generally inhabited almost exclusively by men you know the western novels are like a bunch of men out you know in the in the deserts of mexico by themselves or in texas or wherever they are um and and a lot of the 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 occupations that he seems very interested in that mccarthy is interested in tend to be occupations that are that are held by men we have all the salvage divers or we have i think the guy in no country for old men is like a welder or something i think he really is i think he loves his girlfriend or his wife or my memory You know my memory is not that great, but you have these very very male worlds, uh, the where you know there's an enormous amount of violence. There's an enormous amount of sort of the this fight between good and evil. I think I was particularly satisfied uh, by these two books because at the end of his life, and you know at the end of like this kind of undisputably great, disputedly undisputably great, indisputably great. you know, work, body of work, we have finally a woman come to the fore who I really am uh, just very intrigued and impressed by. So before we move on to the actual prose, I want to just dive a little bit into these enormous themes. We're not going to dive in. In fact, we're going to skim over the top of them. I just wanted to sort of um, lay out some of the themes that I think, uh, you know, he's he's really deftly handling. So we have the nature of evil, which is something that he is deeply preoccupied with throughout all of his work. We have the, the nature of men and humans. What is it about men and it's mostly men that makes them do terrible things and what is it you know again it's not far from the nature of evil but sort of like what does human evil look like um he has said that like he can't imagine a world without bloodshed and thinks that would be naive and he really does believe that that violence is sort of a really part and parcel with who humans are We have this idea of the sins of the father revisiting the subsequent generations. Very clearly here, we have this enormous preoccupation with the atomic bomb. And very much like Faulkner is dealing with the legacy of slavery, we have this very complicated legacy, just one generation removed, uh, of one of the men who uh, invented and who was not remorseful about uh, the atomic bomb. So you have this really big question about sort of intergenerational um, you know, do we inherit you know the evils I mean, if you think they're evils, and neither of the kids think their father was evil um but they they do think that you know they they have a complicated legacy, given what um what that atomic bomb unleashed, and not just in terms of the death toll in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki. But they're, they're concerned about sort of the escalation of, of all of this. It's very much like Frankenstein, this idea of um, you know, unleashing this whole new thing into the world and, and not trusting men to be careful and, and um, protective and reasonable with this new technology. And of course, I will make the argument, it's really eerie to be reading this book in 2023 because, um, you know, at one point, uh, Alicia says something about how the last century is being the most destructive in the history of mankind when we have continued, in fact, to be careless and to be short sighted and to be selfish. And, you know, when you think about climate change, it's all you have these these enormous sort of legacies of human destruction. And the idea of extinction, and the idea of of moving towards something or setting something in motion that we cannot, in fact, stop. We also have themes um, that are that are sort of timeless and are very important, but aren't quite as large in scope. One is this idea of forbidden love. Um, one is the idea of family loyalty. You know how much loyalty do these children have to their their father and to their mother? There's also this real question of the possibility of union between two people. Like, is it possible for people to sort of actually come together? You know, how, how much is each of us truly alone? You know, there's a lot of people alone and feeling lonely and people being isolated and people feeling adrift in McCarthy in general. This idea of like how essentially alone is each of us is a very large question in this book. Um, the idea of predestination of organized religion of an afterlife of God I mean these are all themes that that are just throughout the entire novel um we have this idea of scientific progress. I'm making um you know quotation mark fingers here because again we have this idea of not all progress as being good and also of of people being very irresponsible with uh you know the resources that they have at hand. Uh, We have this question of punishment, who deserves punishment, who is making laws, who is deciding what is okay and what is not okay, both in terms of social mores, but also in terms of like these much bigger kind of intergenerational uh, ideas of punishment. You know, do the subsequent generations, in fact, um, owe some sort of karmic debt? We have an enormous focus on physics and math. And I want to say something about that. I literally still cannot do my times tables. Like I just, it's a bit of a joke in our family. Talk about a party trick. It's like, it's its actually, I mean, it should be more embarrassing than it is. I'm actually not that embarrassed, but I was never ever good at math. And I i didn't really, I wasn't that drawn into, uh, you know, I only did like high school science. I got a C plus in chemistry. I forgot to turn on my lab notebook. I mean, not a great look, not, I was busy. I was busy racing around, actually getting into quite a bit of trouble at that point in my life, Um, but, This is to say that I am not someone who knows, I cannot get physics, I cannot understand light, I cannot understand math. I mean, I am not a STEM person. I liked biology, I liked geometry, which like tells you everything you need to know, and I loved the science in this book. I loved the physics. I even just liked all the kind of name dropping of all these mathematicians. Cause I was like, oh my God, that guy sounds German. And oh my gosh, you know, like, oh, I actually know that. I know who Feynman is. And I know who um, Alan Turing is. Even though I'm someone who like has no knowledge of mathematics, higher mathematics or lower frankly, and I have no knowledge of physics, like like negative, um, I still really, really enjoyed these deep dives into both physics and math because he's so good that, you know, there's this real sort of obvious philosophical thing happening that you can see as part of the discussion. We have big questions about the nature of reality, the nature of sanity is a big one, so There are these huge themes that sound cumbersome and they're really not. I mean, a lot of the book is very heady, but it's just absolutely just incredibly well done. It is now time to do my favorite part of the lecture, which is to talk about the gorgeous prose. And I want to um, move beyond the thing that everybody mentions, which is the kind of unstandard, nonstandard punctuation and the lack of glosses or attribution in dialogue. You know, we always need to ask that question so what? I mean, somebody in one of these interviews I listened to, it wasn't even an interview, it was like a silly, I was going to say stupid, it was a really silly um, reading of this book. But he was saying that, he wanted that the reason why McCarthy like lacked in punctuation and didn't um, put attributions and glosses and whatnot is because he wanted the reader to work harder. I just don't ever buy that argument. Nobody like, like act like the reason shouldn't be like, oh, I want the reader to work harder. The reader might have to work harder, but there has to be a bigger, you know, a, a, like a more meaningful one than just like, I'm going to make someone work hard. So um, what I will say is that this lack of quotation marks it, it is much more realistic in the sense that it's like you're closer to the dialogue it's like there's an intimacy to it because you're just looking at the words I also think it forces him to the dialogue is so good and it's so forceful and I think in part that's because he's not relying on any kind of adverbs in the glasses you know it's not like she said dejectedly or you know whatever kind of clumsy writing somebody would do. It's it's just very, very hardworking. And and this idea of of most of the writing, the punctuation, and a lot of the sentences as being very stripped down and very spare, I will argue that he's also totally decadent and florid. It's sort of, things are either kind of, um, you know, it's a combination of both, some very short declarative sentences that feel very much like Hemingway, and then these long, beautiful sort of Proustian things. He said he doesn't understand Proust, Proust or um, or Henry James. And let me tell you, when Cormac McCarthy said he doesn't understand them, what he means is like, he does not value them. He's just like not into this kind of navel-gazy kind of, um, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that about Proust because I love Proust. And I would argue, in fact, that Proust is looking at a lot of these same questions. But again, McCarthy is, it's, um, it's a very different set of priorities that we are seeing in this book. So, to talk about you know the spareness and the idea of the, of the writing being stripped down and then also kind of grandiose is about this idea of, of people, his protagonists, these men as being really, um, they're searching for self-awareness, they are somewhat self-aware, but there's this real drive in them to understand things better. And my, my, my thesis is that the writing is stripped down because they are generally quiet They're generally unassuming. It actually generates an enormous amount of sympathy when these men are, they're pretty quiet. They're pretty laconic. They're like these just kind of um, like, you know, still waters running very, very deep. And also the punctuation, I think he's just, again, like wanting things to be very plain and very spare. And then, you know, also very grandiose. Okay. Um, he does a lot of compound words. So, and that's a very James Joyce thing. So like, um, it, and it's not just like living room. It's like, uh, I'm going to have to come across one in the in the writing itself but they're they're very unusual compound words he's making them up they're they're like grammatically or in terms of syntax and spelling and grammar they're not correct but they're beautifully done and there's always there's always a nuance when you jam these words together and create a new word there, there is a nuance that is really meaningful and, and it's really, there's a kind of a, um, a very efficient thing that he is doing with these compound words. His gorgeous prose also has a lot of something called polysyndeton. So polysyndeton is just that instead of having commas, you have the word and. So when all these people are like, oh, my God, his punctuation is so stripped down. I I think part of the reason why he doesn't have as many commas and why it seems like the punctuation is stripped down is because there is a lot of this polysyndeton. So instead of saying, you know, I went to the store um, to buy milk, bread and cheese, it would be milk and bread and cheese. So in the, I mean, actually, that sounds Sounds delightful to me right now. But um, that example, I think, does actually give you a sense of it it slows the reader down. It makes you focus on all three of the words instead of just thinking of them as like a laundry list and like zipping through toward the end. You really think a little more about each one. It also places them all sort of on the same level uh, instead of that kind of the natural thing for the psyche to do psyche i don't know if it's your psyche but you know your brain is you're kind of moving along and the last word tends to have a little more weight just because you're moving toward it and because you have that little gap between it and the next sentence however small um to have your brain kind of dwell on it but when you add the ands in it sort of everything is is elevated a bit and everything is put on the same level that's also a very hemingway thing um you can kind of imagine hemingway you know the day was hot and dry and long, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. So we have the and We have a lot of digression in the prose, which I really love. Um, It's not even that he sets up something incredibly taut and like full of tension and then has a digression and comes back to it. It's simply that these digressions are so interesting and so well done and so beautiful that you're happy to just kind of spend a lot of time with them. He's so good at figurative language, and anyone who has watched the uh, the Fox page before knows that I'm very choosy. You know, don't throw figurative language in there if you if you're not good at it. You know, really, figurative language being you know metaphor and simile and personification and pathetic fallacy. Anytime the words on the page are meaning more than just what the words on the page are denoting. Every time it's incredibly apt and there's a surprising amount of figurative language and always the kind of, so what, is just astounding. He's just an absolute master. Um, We also, another mark of this gorgeous prose is again, sort of the vulnerability in these uh, quiet, like really sensitive uh, protagonists. But it's interesting too, that the characters tend to be very competent in. And, and very sort of modest in in their whatever they're doing bobby western for example is very very bright um very very smart guy was gonna be you know like this big mathematician guy um very much like his sister then became a race car driver and then a salvage diver largely because he has like really a very strong wish to i mean this is like a, another thing that we have a, the sort of death drive. And actually the sex drive, all these kind of Freudian drives are very apparent in uh, McCarthy in general. And certainly Bobby Western is doing things that are very dangerous, in part because uh, he is miserable in his life, very much like his sister, both of them, for a very big reason, which I am not going to uh, spoil for you. We also have really subtle, but very potent humor. So the humor, Dwight Garner is a big fan of like the hilariousness of McCarthy. And I'm not sure it's hilarious. And it's certainly not the thing that people tend to lead with, but he is very funny. And we're gonna look at some things. And honestly, sometimes you just really need the comic relief. Like you just are like, oh my God, thank God, this is even remotely funny because I really need a break from all of this darkness. Although again, incredibly rewarding really, really engaging work. Oh, and I mentioned before about the dialogue. I mean, the dialogue is absolutely masterful. You have these characters that pop into The Passenger and not so much Stella Maris because it's just the therapist and Alicia talking, but throughout The Passenger, there are people who, um, the best example that's just popping right to my mind is that um, Bobby goes and visits someone who was in the like sanatorium with his sister and, it's just dialogue between the two of them with no glasses. We don't really, we can't really see the guy very well in the scene, but the dialogue is such that you feel like you absolutely know who he is. Finally, we are going to look at four different, very short uh, chunks of this work, because I really want to show you um, how incredible the prose is. And also um, this will be a good way, I think, to take a look at some of these bigger themes by looking at these sort of microcosms of the novel. First on page 96. so. This is when he, these glasses are so crazy. They're so magnifying. I just can't even, I'm getting dizzy. I'm like this one, I'm like Alice falling down the hole. This is when he has an apartment and he has a cat. So there's a lot of cats and a lot of birds throughout the novel. It's so, it's so skillfully done. I mean, the different birds themselves and the different instances when cats arrive I mean, you could write a doctoral thesis on the the you know the birds in this. At one point, there are two moon-faced owls. Who's? Oh wait, I think we might be reading that part. Hold hold your horses. Hold hold your birds. Hold your flock of birds on that. Hold your murder of crows. We're here in the middle of '96. This is when he is realizing uh, that these people who are surveilling him are in fact uh, really threatening, and that he and his cat might need to uh, move. I think in lots of cases, the cat is sort of a stand-in for Alicia. This is like, as close as he can get to another human is um, this idea of of this cat, which, you know, everybody knows how cats are. Cats are very like, take it or leave it. You know, he doesn't have, have a dog. It's not a dog traveling around with him, but we are here to look at the pros. He unplugged the table lamp and carried it to the door and then began to take everything out to the truck and load it into the cab or wedge it in the front of the boom Five trips and he was done. So the truck is um, important. He becomes, in fact, very itinerant, becomes nomadic in lots of ways. But even this idea of, I don't even know what the boom is, um, in the cab or wedge it in front of the boom. So this is one of these very flattering things that Carmack McCarthy does. There are many, many terms of art in his work. And a term of art is simply like a word or a term that is used in a certain industry or a certain pursuit that is not known to lay people. I don't know what the boom of a truck is but he doesn't explain it we understand like it's a part of the truck and he's wedging stuff you know like around it or into it or whatever um so you have you know enough of what it is but he's very flattering because he sort of assumes that he that you the reader are like as wide-ranging in your interests and your authorities and your knowledge as he is so it's it's this very cool thing and you know, anyone out there who's actually a writer, um, definitely don't over explain. Trust your reader because if the reader understands, they'll be like, oh, I totally know. I know what the boom of the truck is. And if they don't know, they'll be like, oh my wait, that's cool that he thinks I understand what the boom of the truck is also what we're talking about here is five trips and he's done it's the lamp so we're looking for illumination he's unplugging it he's in the dark he or you know like at least metaphorically he's in the dark he has this idea of carrying um you know the the lamp itself like he's he's needing to bring this illumination with him he needs to understand not only you know who's after him and what's happening in his life but like these much bigger questions about how much he owes you know some sort of debt for his father's uh, invention of the atomic bomb, we also have um, this idea that five trips and he was done, it, he just doesn't have very much stuff. He has slowly kind of divested himself of everything and he just has very few belongings. He's become again, somewhat of a of a nomad. And then we have this. He knelt and crawled up under the bed, talking to the cat until he could reach it. Come on, Billy Ray, nothing's forever. It wasn't the sort of news that a cat liked to hear. It's so good. I wrote in the marginalia, I wrote ha, which is my, that's like my little clue to myself that I need to look back if I'm looking for instances of humor. It's not like laugh out loud funny. It's not like hilarious, but it is this kind of subtle humor that gives you a break. So he says, "Um, nothing's forever. And then it wasn't the sort of news that a cat likes to hear. So the other thing that's happening here, of course, is that even instances of humor like this, where we have, um, you know, this this question about like can anything be forever, like it's a very very large question that he is making light of here. Nothing's forever, is is very resonant. It's at the end of this paragraph. He's having to move and he means that you know his his current living situation isn't forever but also there is this idea of literally like you know, the annihilation of a whole entire city by an atomic bomb, or there is the idea of, you know, change as always being the, you know, the norm, or as, you know, extinction or climate change, or there's just, there's all, there's like very, very large resonance, not to mention that, you know, his childhood or his sister's childhood or his mother's life, she died of cancer early. Like, you know, this idea of nothing being forever, he's just saying it to the cat, and yet it is hugely informative of the rest of the book. and the idea that it wasn't the sort of news that a cat likes to hear, we also know that in fact this is news that that he doesn't want to hear. But what's happening that for me is really important here is that there's a certain amount of projection of his emotions and his needs onto this cat. So I'm not going to tell you what happens to the cat because I don't want to spoil things, but I will say that this the, the cat is um, you know in lots of ways, it's kind of an externalization of what he is feeling. So this idea of it's not the news the cat wants to hear, it's also not news that Bobby wants to hear. Um, Billy Ray, uh, I don't really know I, I don't really know like what we're it's probably not Billy Ray Cyrus. That we're talking about here, I'm thinking of Ray like a ray of light. I'm, I don't, I don't have a great um, response for why the cat's name is Billy Ray, but I can tell you that for sure there would be um, a, a real reason for that. There are lots of names actually in the book, but I can guarantee you, or I would bet you a lot of money, that um, that in fact all of them are going to be significant just because uh, McCarthy is that good. Okay, we're gonna move on to another instance of why this prose is so amazing on page one thirty three. So we find out later that that their father—this is not spoiling anything—but their father dies in Mexico. This, it, it, they're um, they're landing in the airplane. He and his sister coming back from Mexico. This this is the kind of pyrotechnic writing. It's not the stripped down spare. This is, is a much more um, expansive kind of prose. And it's important to remember that this is also Bobby. It's a, definitely a third-person narrator, but we have this sense of, of being um, you know, very close to his uh, you know, consciousness. In the dying light, a river like frayed silver rope, lakes deep in the stone coolies white with ice, the western mountains burning, the portside navigation lights came on, the starboard lights were green as on a ship. The pilot would turn them off in the clouds because of the reflection. When he woke her later, far to the north, a desert city was passing under the wing and sliding off into the darkness like a crab nebula. A cast of stones upon a jeweler's black cloth. Her hair was like gossamer. He wasn't sure what gossamer was. Her hair was like gossamer. I mean, this is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's also like a little bit funny. Uh, so I want to just pick this apart a little bit. So we have this kind of fragmentary language. It almost feels like there aren't verbs. Uh, and in the first one, there, there isn't a verb. Uh, and it's very descriptive in this. Again, we have this incredible figurative language, a simile in the beginning. In the dying light, a river like a frayed silver rope. Here we have this beautiful simile with light and you can imagine, you know, the, the way that, that that would look on the ground. The Western Mountains burning. So again, you have this idea of apocalypse, you have the idea of the sun, you have the idea of losing the light, the idea of sunset. Then this whole thing, the port side navigation lights came on, the starboard lights were green as on a ship. So this is another one of those kinds of um, in terms of art, like this idea of the port side navigation lights came on. I can't quite picture that. I mean, you, I know you can kind of imagine on in a commercial flight, you know, the lights out on the wing. But this idea that he knows, in fact, that when they fly into the clouds, the pilot will turn off the lights because of the glare against the, cr- the clouds. You have this sense that he is not only like a scavenge diver and, and a race car driver, but he also is, in fact, um, you know, has has piloted things and is is very knowledgeable about ships. And so you have this sense of him as, again, being like this very authoritative figure. Um, and then this idea of the Crab Nebula, there's a, a town underneath them that looks like a Crab Nebula. So y- you have this idea of the two of them as being in the middle of the universe because they're in this airplane. And, and at first you're seeing things like, um, you know, a silver frayed rope, which, I mean, I, she hangs herself. I am so sorry. Can you hear that dog? That is so rude. Hold on. There's a dog being so rude at the door. Come on. So this idea of them and, and the Crab Nebula, this idea of, of them being in the sky and the two of them alone in this dark space, like kind of hurtling through the cosmos, you do have this sense of them, um, you know, these two protagonists in the novel as being very much, you know, they're very close, but they're also uh, really, um, you know, they're, they're uh, alone. They're alone in the world. But the idea of the crab nebula, like that's a very specific thing. It's a very, I, I don't even know what it is. I mean, a nebula is like some sort of a star situation. I think it's like, I don't know, like a star dying or it's a star or I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's like a... Like an um astrophysicist kind of thing that you know an astrophysicist would know so you have this incredible knowledge on his part that he knows what a crab nebula is again we don't have to um you know we don't have to know that we know ish what a nebula is there's also such a nice tie-in between um, the airplane and the port side and the ship and the crab and the lake and the water so th- all of this stuff is very it feels very cohesive because there's sort of a watery element to all of this. The ice and the fire are actually totally separate, but you have this idea of a lot of geography. You have this idea of a lot of maritime stuff. You have an idea of like lights guiding your way and keeping you safe, you know, so that someone else could see you. But then the idea of lights going out, you have the idea of the stars and navigation, being able to find your way places. All of the writing is so incredibly impactful because he's so good. It's so, it's astonishing. And then those last three sentences, first of all, it is like poetry. It's like sort of heart rending because you know, again, in the very beginning that she hangs herself. You also, there's a description there of her hair and her eyes um, when when she is found um, that are, really haunting. So this idea here of returning to her hair as being gossamer, um, it is really impactful because we know in fact that she is going to hang herself and depart from him forever. So he says, her hair was like gossamer. He wasn't sure what gossamer was. Her hair was like gossamer. So you have this, I mean, it's almost like a cone, you know, like that, like those kinds of riddles where there is no way to answer it. But he has this idea. I mean, Gossamer is Gossamer. I feel like it's diaphanous, like, but also maybe gold. I feel like it's golden and also kind of, you know, diaphanous. So you have this sense of, um, of of this like poetic thing here and this impossibility that he doesn't know what it is and yet he is sure that that's what it is. You also, at the end of this kind of fragmentary and very figurative paragraph, you have these very declarative sentences. Um, Her hair was like gossamer. He wasn't sure what gossamer was, her hair was like gossamer. You have repetition, you have declarative sentences, they're also similes, but you have like this kind of um, mixture of both very, uh, you know, this, this sort of fragmentary, really kind of florid writing, and then also writing that is very declarative and, and really just absolutely gorgeous. So this is a little passage on 360. It's just absolutely beautiful. This is later in the novel. So we have actually quite a bit more information. Um, he is uh, living in a barn at this point. He's again, um, ha- has sort of left. He's like on the lamb here. And um, we have this beautiful description. He'd bought some school tablets and a small packet of ballpoint pens at the drugstore, and at night he'd sit propped against the hay bales and write letters to her by the light of the oil lamp. So one thing I will say about McCarthy is that there is a timelessness to his work that is, I mean, this could be, you have a ballpoint pen, but other than that, you know, once the ballpoint pen was invented, I don't know when that was, but like, as soon as we had the ballpoint pen, this could have happened at any point. There is a sense of uh, like both things being absolutely timeless, you know, again, these very, very large questions of fate and of all of these huge, you know, good and evil and destiny and religion, all of these large questions are, um, you know, timeless part of the reason why his work is feels so kind of classic and enduring and so relevant is because it does feel timeless in lots of ways. A lot of the border crossing, you know, they're like out being cowboys and it's very, uh, you know, I, I actually don't remember when it is. I feel like it might even be like in the middle of the 19th century. So you have this, this real sort of timelessness, which I think is excellent because it, it, it sort of helps us remember that these big, big questions are in fact time. List. then he goes on and says there were two owls in the barn gable even before the snow was gone he stood in the bay and played the light up into the loft two heart-shaped faces peered down pale as apple halves in the light they blinked and shifted their heads from side to side some wisps of straw fell Okay, so this is incredible. I think you could read that and just be like, oh, whatever, like that's cool, there's some owls, but if you are like me, you're gonna really dig into this. Anytime the word apple comes up in um, any kind of literature, you need to think of the Garden of Eden. So we have this idea of owls in the barn gable, and um, in the beginning, we don't know that there are two, but then he stood in the bay and played the light up into the loft. So he's shining a light on something, I mean, before we had the, the example with him carrying the lamp, I mean, I think it, we have this issue of light and dark, like, you know, choosing the light or the evil, the good or the evil, the light or the dark. But you also have this idea of, of him needing to illuminate things. He needs to understand them. There's also the idea of darkness and oblivion. And um, there's a lot of stuff about light with the atomic bomb that is really um, very significant. Apparently I also need to write a dissertation about the light in this book as well. Um, but then we have this, two heart-shaped faces peered down. So this idea of heart-shaped faces, you know, owls do have those big white heart-shaped faces, um, like the two halves of apples. And in fact, um, I learned not that long ago in a little um, little falconry uh, hour that um, th- those are actually ears. They have their eyes, but like those big kind of flat, plates around their eyes are actually their ears, which is incredible. Um, But we have these two heart-shaped faces. So it's very important that there are two of them. And it's very important that they're heart-shaped because a lot of this book is about the idea of unrequited love and a lot of this book is about um you know the the inability to be truly with another person that it, you know it's it's about sort of the the fundamental loneliness and the fact that people are fundamentally alone so this idea of two heart-shaped faces peering down um it's it's reinforcing this idea that he's very much alone but he's being observed by a pair of, of hearts essentially then we move on a little bit um Two heart-shaped faces peered down, pale as apple halves in the light. So we have um, this repetition of light, which is beautiful. We also have all of these plosives. So we have peered down pale as apple halves we, and then blinked. So we have these, these plosives, the p's and the b's. You have this sense of possibility here, and you have this sense of like a little more, um, n- not exactly levity, but like it's not like L's or S sounds, it's its there's a little more sort of liveliness here. We have the idea of these owls, um, and we have the idea of playing the light, and we have this idea of faces peering down, heart-shaped, we have all these P's. All of those plosive sounds are like the, the narration is speeding up a little bit because we have the surprise of these owls up above. And this idea of apple halves, so again, you need to, whenever you have an apple, you need to think of the Garden of Eden. And there's a lot of talk in here about Satan. And there's a lot of talk in here about Satan tempting Adam and Eve. So the the sort of Edenic Overtones in this book and in Stella Maris are legion, lots and lots of overtones. So this idea here of apple halves, you know, presumably if the apple is halved, then you know, knowledge has been discovered, the the fruit has been eaten. And when Adam and Eve eat, when they eat from the tree of knowledge, they are discovering that they are naked. They are discovering that they have committed original sin. They have discovered that they are flawed. Um, they are being condemned. It's um, it's a fall from grace. And then we have here, this. so we have that evocation of the fruit, the apple, and the two birds and the heart. So there's all of this overtones about love and sex and romance and like post-lapsarian, so like after the fall of Adam and Eve. And then we have some wisps of straw fell. So you have this idea of something falling, you have an idea of, of um, you, you know, things sort of uh, like an actual fall that is coming on the heels of this Edenic thing. It's just absolutely beautifully done. The last passage that I wanna look at um, in this discussion of how gorgeous the prose is and how impactful and how how just absolutely rich and dense and incredible the prose is, um, is on page 366. So here, this is actually the example that I mentioned earlier about the person who is in the sanatorium. He is a friend of Alicia's. And this is that incredible dialogue. I wanted to be sure we saw some dialogue. So this is, his name is Jeffrey. And um, Jeffrey also seems pretty sane. I'm gonna say that all of the people who are supposed to be so insane in this book actually seem very sane. I mean, again, one of the questions I think McCarthy is asking here is like, the nature of sanity, why are we so normative in terms of things needing to be in one certain way? Okay, on the top of 366. So this is when Bobby has come to uh, the sanatorium where his sister was before she hung herself, and he's talking to this guy, Jeffrey, who is a friend of hers, and they are talking about her and what what Jeffrey talked about with Alicia when uh, she was in the institution with him. Jeffrey dug a small pair of binoculars out from somewhere in his robe and leaned and scanned the lawn. The world must be composed at least half of darkness, he said, we talked about that. Do you miss her? What, are you nuts? What do you see over there? Some green polka dot lizards, quite a few in the woods over there, big fuckers. Really? Maybe not like you, of course, but I sure do miss her. Who wouldn't? I thought she'd be safe here, she wasn't. She should have told me, I'd have gone with her. Would you really? In a heartbeat. It's a little bit cumbersome to be reading it out loud and to be hearing it on on your part, but it's so impressive and it is so good. So this idea of him pulling out the binoculars again there's a lot of stuff about vision, there's a lot of stuff about being able to see things, there's a lot of stuff about lenses and glass and um you know physics, the physics of sort of vision and and um distortion. So and and again he's pulling it out of his robe so you have this idea that he, we're being reminded of the fact that he is, you know, in a, a, a you know, a mental hospital. And then, of course, the thing that he remembers talking to her about, which he's just kind of feathering into the conversation here, is that the world is half dark. So that presumes that half of it is light, but half of the world as being dark is, is very dark. But what I love here is um, this part of the dialogue where Bobby says, do you miss her? And he says, what, are you nuts? And it's so excellent. And actually it's what comma are you nuts? There's a comma for all of those people who say that uh Cormac McCarthy has no punctuation. Cormac McCarthy did say that that semicolons are like literally should be outlawed, which those that's like my second favorite punctuation mark. The first favorite, um, of course, being the M-dash. Second, really, I mean, it's not actually the semicolon, but the semicolons are right up there. Probably a parenthes. Mm, I don't know. Um, but this idea of what, are you nuts? is so, um, it's, it's so good. It tells us everything about Jeffrey. It tells us everything about how he is with other people, it tells us how he feels about Alicia. It's so, so deft and it's working so hard and it's so um, tidy and efficient. And then he, we have our Bobby changing the subject here. What do you see over there? And then this idea of um, some some green polka dot lizards. Of course, we have him, Jeffrey, is uh, poking fun at the idea of like, of course, he's, he's quote, unquote, crazy. So he's going to be seeing, you know, these polka dot lizards, these big fuckers. So you have this idea of of him as being sane enough to know that the expectation on the part of Bobby is that he's seeing some crazy thing. Um, when in fact, you know, there are a lot of people in the book, like Klein, who's the PI that he sort of hires at one point, who actually sound much less sane than this guy, Jeffrey. So we have this idea of these big fuckers, the green polka dot lizards. Um, and then he's, the, our, our uh, Bobby says, Really? And then we have Jeffrey say, Maybe not like you, of course, but sure, I miss her so you have this idea of the the conversation is woven in this question about whether or not he misses her we think as the reader that we have moved on from that topic but then very deftly jeffrey comes back to it in a way that's a little jarring for the reader um it's a little bit like a misplaced modifier but then it's so natural and it so catches you off guard in exactly the way that the conversation would so it's just beautiful. And then this idea of um when when he talks about his devotion, when Jeffrey says that he thought he would he thought she would be safe there. Um there Stella Maris is when she goes, it's you know, the entire book is her at the hospital. So you do have this sense of, and and she, you know, the, the doctor's asking why she's there, and there is this sense of her wanting to be safe there. So it's absolutely tragic that we know that in fact she's not safe there, and that Jeffrey thought that she was, and it's so hard heartfelt and so sad. And in lots of ways, someone like Jeffrey, who we see only briefly, and yet we really have a good sense of them in part because of the excellent dialogue, but you you also have a character like Jeffrey um, articulating some of the thoughts and some of the emotions and feelings that Bobby himself is not able to articulate. So it's this, it's this beautifully efficient and incredibly hardworking dialogue that we see actually all throughout the book. I do want to touch briefly on this idea of misogyny in uh, Cormac McCarthy. So it is true, and and I, I, you know I, I find this as well that this the worlds that he is creating are these kind of hyper masculine worlds. So part of that's just because we just don't have very many women in these books. Um, the protagonists tend to be men, with the exception of Alicia, um, and we but we have these protagonists even though uh, you know the, they're in these hyper masculine spaces. The Protagonists themselves often, to me, seem like they are critical of the hyper masculinity around them. I mean, they're definitely, you know, Bobby Western is a good example. He's a race car driver and a salvage diver, and like he's doing all of these crazy sort of hyper masculine things. Um, I mean, I'm I'm I'm, com- I'm uncomfortable even saying this kind of thing, but I think it's fairly safe to say that being a salvage diver and being a race car driver. Um, And frankly, even a mathematician, you know, this is a very male world that he is inhabiting. In fact, his sister also inhabits the male world. She's the only woman um, at this math kind of uh, place that she goes and tries to work through these problems with these mathematicians and she's 17 and she's the only woman. So you have Alicia as this, you know, very strong female figure in these hyper masculine settings. But even when you don't have a competent, Well, I mean, I say she's competent because she's incredibly bright. And we have this very strong presence of this female person in these books, but really it's it's the men who dominate almost all the rest. When we do have female characters, um, they tend to be like in uh, uh, All the Pretty Horses, we have uh, uh, the older woman, um, Alfonsa, So she's kind of this matriarchal figure and basically says, you can do anything here on the ranch except have sex with Alejandra. So then, of course, you know, he falls in love with Alejandra. But, but you also have this sense of Alejandra as being, a, you know, a woman who is in this kind of hyper-masculine male Mexican um, family. And she's, Alejandra is used very much as a pawn and they want to sort of marry her in these certain ways to other people for power plays. So you, you have kind of this criticism of these very patriarchal, very hyper-masculine worlds where these men are operating. So, I mean, I hate to like be critical of other people's podcasts, but there was this whole thing about how all of the men in Cormac McCarthy are all these like, they're all subject to this like damsels in distress thing. And that, that all of them like basically are kind of lured in by these women who need help. And that always kind of spells disaster for them. So, and this person in the podcast even said that like McCarthy had to sort of leave the three marriages in order to like pursue his art. I would argue it very differently. I would say that there's are sensitive male protagonists who are, you know, operating in a world where they, they are very sensitive and, and can be very vulnerable in lots of ways. Certainly Bobby Western is very vulnerable and he's very sensitive and he is operating in this very hyper-masculine world. He operates well, in that world and yet he's deeply uncomfortable and what he is striving for is union with a woman. Love and 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 um, like union with another, with a woman, promises some kind of like deliverance and some kind of savior from this hyper-masculine world and yet it is not something that he can attain. So I would say that women, um, Alejandra also, Women in these books are examples, I think, of this notion that people are fundamentally alone and that essentially like the, the the sort of romantic love and the idea of like having a soulmate or the idea of like completing yourself. I mean, you can tell I'm a little skeptical of those ideas, but the 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 um, I think one of the things McCarthy is doing with the females in his book is books is this idea of of um, men as being somewhat devoted to the idea, but the but the reality of um, you know uniting with someone else and having it be uh, you know blissful and joyful and harmonious is simply not possible. I think in No Country for Old Men, I think the guy who's the welder is very devoted to his like wife or girlfriend or whatever. My sense is that women play somewhat minor parts, and yet. They're very important in terms of representing the fact that 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 um, you know union is not in fact possible. It's a very curious thing. The mother in the road, um, I, one of the literary criticism, one of the feminist critiques, was essentially that when you in in the road, the mother very early on realizes that the apocalypse is is happened and realizes how horrible things are and essentially kills herself. So you also have, um, you know, we have Alicia in the very beginning of The Passenger having killed herself. So on some level, the theorist said that all of the women in McCarthy are either dead or dying or... I can't remember what the other thing, oh, absent, absent, dead or dying. And it's true, it is true. But I think in, in both of the case of The Road and also in the case with Alicia in um, Stella Maris and in The Passenger, the, the reader and all of the characters are deeply sympathetic with this urge to, to, to commit suicide. I mean, there is this deep sort of sympathy for this idea that like, it's a very comforting thought that if you are in so much pain, and you are so uncomfortable in your life here on earth, that, that you don't have to be in pain. So I think, um, actually, the mom in the road, like, I think a lot of people would have been like, okay, that was the right thing to do. That was the right move. I, I do think that it's too easy, and sort of too, um like knee jerky to dismiss these women as Simply being absent. I also think um, one of the critiques of the road is that then the father gets like all of these accolades for doing all of this maternal stuff, and that it's this kind of mother blaming that the mother, in in killing herself, she like is you know abandoning her child, and that then the father has to sort of you know step up in this way that's like the mother's fault. But I, I would um, perhaps look at this in kind of what I call like the Disney phenomenon, which is that you have to get the mother out of the picture in order to have adventure ensue. And I mean, it's hard to think of the road as just being an adventure story, but in lots of ways, it really is. It's like the ultimate survival and and adventure story. But if the mom were in the picture, it's like it would be too comfortable. There would be too much kind of comfort and solace and too much love, really. So... Also just structurally speaking, it wouldn't be as great if you had a couple and their child roaming around. So you have this idea that like true, um, like in order for things to really become difficult and in order to have a very difficult situation, you need to eliminate the mother like in Dumbo and in Bambi and all of these, I mean, practically all of the fairy tales, you know, the mom's gone, you've got the stepmother. So in the road, um and it actually in in um in the passenger as well the mom is she dies when the kids are 12 i think so yes 12 so y- y- the mother has to be out of the picture in order for um you know in order for people to have to grapple with really really difficult questions so that would be my kind of rebuttal to this idea that um that mccarthy is just like killing off all of the women and has no uh no respect for them Also, I will say that never would I read uh, McCarthy. I mean, we read different people for different reasons. I would never read McCarthy like for a feminist take on something. I would never read it for like gender parody. I'm really happy and really interested in the fact that a woman is so central Certainly to Stella Maris, and that we have so much of her voice in that book. And you know, theoretically, we have half of uh, the passenger is also devoted to Alicia's voice because we have these italicized chapters. A lot of it has to do with her hallucinations. But you know, you can argue that all of those hallucinations are elements of her psyche that are simply, um, you know, embodied around her. So we have this real deep dive into this very, very compelling character named Alicia, who really seems to know herself and in lots of ways it seems very sane. So I love that McCarthy is kind of ending with someone and in, with, a, with a woman at, sort of at the center of things. And I wonder if that will also help um, some of the feminist scholarship of the McCarthy uh, body of work as a whole. Before we end, I want to do um, the, the little parlor trick that I was uh, uh, alluding to before, which is simply that I want to take three of the digressions, and I'm going to just pick a, um, a paragraph, I'm going to pick a number, and I'm going to go to that place, and we're going to see if my theory holds true that um, each of these digressions is in fact incredibly valuable. Okay, so the first one is the Debussy Fields. So this is this old friend of his. I think they grew up together, maybe even in Knoxville. Um, people say that this book is uh, autobiographical in part because a lot of it takes place. He, Cormac McCarthy really liked New Orleans. He spent some time in Ibiza. So people are like, oh, this is very autobiographical. I beg to differ. I mean, maybe a little bit, but simply because the the protagonist of the book spends time in the same places does not mean this book is autobiographical. Okay, so um, between 71 and 81, those pages is the W.C. Fields um, chunk. It's one of the digressions, one of the, there are several. Um, and it's beautiful the way these digressions kind of repeat and echo, but I'm just gonna pick, I'm gonna pick the number 74. I love the number four. I'm going to page 74 here and I'm gonna go down to the first, okay, it's gonna be the first big, um, like, you know, whatever, the first big chunk here. The waiter came and placed the silver. Another came with bread wrapped in a cloth napkin. When their waiter came back, Western ordered for both of them. The waiter nodded and moved away. She took a long draw on the cigarillo and moved her head in a slow upward arc exhaling. He couldn't even imagine what her life was like. So, oh my gosh, done it. So this is so beautiful. So W.C. Fields, at um, the very end of the book, uh, he, Bobby entrusts her to read the letters from Alicia that Bobby would never had been able to bring himself to read. So there are a couple of letters that he's been carrying around. And at one point someone says, oh, you probably don't wanna read them because you don't want the story to be over. And in fact, you know, I think as the reader, you you sort of intuited that. At the end, he gives the reader, uh, gives the letters to W.C. Fields to read and to sort of digest for him. And it's this very intimate, incredibly wrenching and really, really difficult and beautiful, beautiful uh, passage where she has to, W.C. Fields, has to has to absorb this this energy and it's really beautiful because the the mystery of what is in those letters remains. I mean, as the reader, you don't really know what's in the letters, and and Bobby himself doesn't have to know. Like there is some mystery and there is some sort of sense that that the story of his sister is not completely over. But again, it's very difficult for Debussy Fields, and she is sobbing and sobbing because she's absorbing all of this pain. So. What I am going to argue is that this woman who, so this is a transgender woman who is talking about wanting enough money to have her operation. So we know in fact that, that, that this is someone who is waiting for uh, sex confirmation, gender confirmation surgery. So we know that this person is a female and definitely is passing as a female everywhere and is getting a lot of attention for being a very, very beautiful woman, um, just as Alicia is. But also we know that this person is in fact, this transgender uh, woman still has male genitalia. So what I would argue is that this W. C. Fields, who is someone who has known Bobby for a long time here, um, is, is kind of an amalgam of the two of them. It's sort of like a um, like it's it's the, the idea of, of of a union um, between these siblings, and um, you have that, the sort of two halves in W.C. Fields. The other thing about um, W.C. Fields, this last sentence here, um, he couldn't even imagine what her life was like. If we are viewing her as kind of a um, a stand-in for the sister and like a mouthpiece for the sister, because w c fields is going to um you know she's going to like listen and she's going to hear the voice of Alicia and is going to digest that information and and give some of the information to Bobby so if we see her as a stand in for Alicia, then this sentence he had no idea what her life was like. Is so poignant and so painful because you have this sense that he has no idea what his sister's life is like. It's just absolutely beautiful prose. This is the thing. When people are like, oh, these digressions are just going nowhere, and it's such a weird structure, and you know, it feels very kind of um, you know, fragmented and not cohesive. I beg to differ. That was totally random. We pulled out a paragraph that is really, I think, a very good argument for why in fact this woman is, um, is is really a very important person. There's also, again, this unrequited love um, that is all throughout the novel and is a huge, huge driver of a bunch of the plot also uh, applies to W. C. Fields because you have this idea of, uh, you know, not having had the gender confirmation surgery. So there's this idea of sort of unrequited, uh, you know, sexual energy here that that we see her as a stand-in for. We also, um, this is someone who Bobby is incredibly, incredibly close to, and so you have this idea also of, of as Bobby, as you know, a Southerner, but who's incredibly um, devoted and loyal to friends, and also is completely not phased at all by the fact that one of his childhood friends has um, gone through a, a, a transition. And you know, Bobby is 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 it's like literally his only friend. Well, it's one of his two friends in the in the world who we see in the novel who he's really close with. He has a handful, he has a handful of friends. Uh, in fact, we're gonna look at the next one. Shadan is um, the the uh, this next person and he is also a childhood friend. We're gonna look, the pages are from 150 to 162. I'm gonna, let's do 164. Again, four is my favorite number. Um, and also then you know that I'm not like rigging it. We're gonna do 164 because that's an option. So we are now at the top of page 164, just like I said that we would. And this is a digression with his friend Shadan. Um, I'm also noticing here, when you look at Shadan, I would have said Shedden. Um, One quick aside, a digression within the digression, is that I saw a lot of Shreve from, uh, from the Faulkner novel Sound and the Fury. Wow, it really took me a second to pull up that title. Um, so Shreve is uh, the best friend of Quentin Compson, and he's he's sort of the 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 a foil in many ways for Quentin Compson. Uh, as Quentin is getting closer and closer to committing suicide himself, Quentin, who is in love with his sister in that novel, and who is also really dealing with you know the the, the legacy of something terrible in this case, slavery, as opposed to the legacy of of the atom bomb. So we have Shadan, who is very much like Shreve, but also Shadan, sorry, Shadan. It's helpful that we have this Shadan character because he's asking a lot of questions because he knew, he, you know, he's known Bobby for a long time, but he's trying to get like the chronology straight, which is very helpful for us. So he's talking about when Bobby's father, who is again, nameless, you know which is very important um when when Bobby's father is uh like who he was working under and what his involvement was with the atomic bomb he asks him about this this mathematician and physicist chu and did he follow chu bobby says yes then berkeley you said that he was the pied piper that your father followed into oblivion do i have that right so you have this idea here i mean again we've got this um we've got this reference to the Pied Piper we've got this reference to free will we've got this reference to a literary figure in this case and also like a child's kind of fable. But this idea, I mean, again, this idea of being led into oblivion, so that's a fragment into oblivion. It's so significant because again, we're associating this father, this nameless father, who is this real mystery at the center of this book. The fact that the the best friend is having to like kind of piece together who this father figure was, and that's kind of at the origin of the story. But we have this idea here of trying to map this whole thing out and still not having a very clear picture of him. And then, of course, the idea of oblivion is speaking to blowing something to oblivion and this idea of this very nihilistic, very apocalyptic kind of uh, preoccupation that McCarthy has that we see in the road. And we see it here again with the atomic age. We see it with this idea of of what you know, the atomic bomb is sort of leading us toward. And certainly, uh, with climate change. So you have this this friend who's asking these questions about the family, and yet it's reinforcing the idea that the father is sort of, he, that, that what he wrought, you know, what, what he developed is um, really something very, very destructive. In fact, something that could turn them all uh, into oblivion. There's also a lot of questions that Alicia is asking essentially about you know, the origin of all humankind in a way that's like very heady. And also is this kind of these questions of oblivion, like what came before the big bang and what is knowable and what's unknowable and what is oblivion and can there be such a thing as nothing? Because in order for something to be nothing, there has to be something that it is nothing in contrast to, if that makes sense. The last sort of digression that I want to look at is um on it's with klein and klein um you know that is a jewish name the judaism comes more to the fore in stella maris uh, but it's very interesting again I might have to write another dissertation here um th- this idea of of the um specifically of of the fact that that this is a jewish family is i think significant and we would have to look at that um more closely i have not in fact looked deeply at that so, uh, but this is the private investigator who it's not clear. Um, Bobby Western has no money, uh, it, it, like a little into the book, some points he does some points he doesn't. Uh, so he can't really hire this guy, but this guy seems very interested in him and in his story. So they meet a few times. Again, we have this kind of nice woven thing with them meeting. Uh, and we have Klein as, um, uh, one of these things that could be seen as kind of like a digression that doesn't really add much because he's not really doing a lot of private investigating work And yet I would argue that in fact the work that he's doing is very important The the digression that he is serving so it's pages 243 to 253 is what we're looking at We'll just look at 244 just because we're gonna stick with the fours, okay? My theory is totally holding. My theory being that I could turn to any one of these pages in these digressions, and that we would have something that was incredibly useful, either as kind of reiteration of important stuff, or um, you know, a, a, a very sort of meaningful piece of a novel. I mean, sure, you could take some of this stuff out, and maybe the the reader wouldn't uh, know that it had been removed. But I would argue that all of it is additive. This is um, on 244. this is when he is very first meeting with Klein and this is actually a very instructive passage and uh, it's dialogue, which is fun. I should ask what you charge. I get 40 bucks an hour including phone conversations. Are we on the clock? Not yet. I need to know what you're up to. Do you get a certain number of nut cases? Yes, are you one? I don't think so. What do you do with them the nut cases? I just string them along and take their money. You're kidding. Yes. You said on the phone that you don't do divorces. What else don't you do? Klein swiveled his chair slightly and swiveled back. This is going to be something weird, isn't it? Isn't that where we're headed? I don't know. Why don't you just lay it out with whatever economy you can muster? Okay. Western started with the airplane and he finished with the oil rig and with the two men in shirt sleeves at seven seas. Klein sat with his fingertips pressed each to each. He was a close listener. When Western finished, they sat. This is so good. This is so incredibly well done. I mean, this guy Klein is kind of just as weird as everybody else. Very significant here that um, we have Bobby asking whether or not he gets a lot of nut cases. So this question of who is sane and who is insane is all throughout the book. And this idea of, of sort of testing what Klein thinks about sort of nut cases is um, really important. It's also interesting that that he's sort of so dismissive of it. I mean, you know, presumably his sister at least has been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, but he's talking about like whether or not you get these nut cases. There's a certain amount of kind of acceptance and also dismissal of sort of the general idea of of sanity here. Um, and then he Klein doesn't even answer seriously. Like he makes sort of a joke about it. So you have this sense of sanity and insanity as being just really not that important. That's one of the things that is being very artfully reinforced here. And then um, we have this idea. Uh, you said on the phone you don't do divorces. So we have this idea here of 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 again this that he's this is not someone who's going to divide people. And you have this reinforcement of the idea of. Of a union, like a true union of two people, two beings, as impossible. I mean, divorce is the thing that's being mentioned here, and and like sort of the possibility of it. So you have this idea that divorce is more kind of like a like a like a possibility because, in fact, people are really not able to meld together. Um, then we have we go on, and um, he swiveled his chair slightly and swiveled it back. So this is like a gloss we talked about this before and it does help us know like sort of the order of the conversation but this idea of turning away and turning back is also symbolic of this idea that that sort of no one is a full ally no one can be trusted Everybody's sort of on their own track this idea of, of people moving away and moving back this idea of, of being sort of alone and being tentative and support as not being solid you know everything is kind of moving around um and then this is going to be something weird, isn't it? And so then the answer to that is, I don't know. So you have this sense, like it's true. And as the reader, I mean, we are on page 245. We're like, I don't know, two thirds of the way through the book. And as the reader, you still don't know. Like you still are like, wait, why are these people following him? It's so nebulous and it's so unresolved. And so we have a reinforcement of that here. And then we go on and it's so great because McCarthy offers us one of the few kind of recaps so he starts with the jet, then he talks about the oil rig, which he was working on an oil rig, and there was some some surveillance that was happening there that was very suspicious. So we have this kind of recap of what has happened so far. But again, here we're two-thirds of the way through, and there's still this sense of like, nobody knows he doesn't know he doesn't even know like bobby doesn't even know what he's coming to complain about or to to like investigate because the the big questions in this book are so sort of not investigatable if that's even a word. So it's very um, this is a digression, yes, but it's very telling and it's really interesting the way that it is reinforcing all of the uh, you know, all of the different themes that that are woven so carefully and that are sort of uh, both, you know, iterated and then reiterated again and again in all of these different ways by all of these different personages. So skillful, so skillful. That's it. I'm gonna leave it at that. I hope this has been interesting. Uh, I have really, really enjoyed this dive into Cormac McCarthy. It had actually been a while since I'd read any of his work. And it was such a treat to really dive into The Passenger and Stella Maris with the idea of, of being able uh, to to just really dig in not only to these works but to try to think about why it is that his prose is so compelling to me. I really believe that this idea that he's one of our greatest American novelists is absolutely the case. Um, and I think we'll return to this text in in other circumstances. Uh, I just I, it's it's really uh, an incredible literary achievement, and I hope that uh, these different sort of advantages whether and I hope that having gotten a slightly better sense of why I think the prose works so well and a little better context for, uh, you know, how we can think about the prose and how we can think about the structure and think about the digressions and how we can consider this book, um, you know, these two books together as, as really the, the literary feat that they are. I hope all of that has been helpful and interesting. And um, I hope that you have enjoyed the the talk as much as I have head on back to the Fox page, find yourself something else to listen to, and happy reading.